My days working and taking care of my little ones can be a lot. I checked out care.com and it was so easy for me to find local, experienced, and background check sitters. Finding our babysitter was way more affordable than I thought. Care.com makes it super easy. Search for qualified candidates. You can view their profiles, read reviews and ratings, check their availability, send messages directly, get the help that you need. Care.com should be every person's go-to. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You must Welcome to You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment of our ongoing series, Polly Platt, The Invisible Woman. One of my main questions heading into this season was, if Polly Platt was the secret weapon behind so many male filmmakers' career-defining films— why didn't she direct a film herself? When Polly had been the production designer on A Star is Born in the mid-70s, she hadn't been able to fathom co-directing that movie. This was due in large part to the climate of gender imbalance in Hollywood at that time. The only woman who had directed more than one studio movie that decade was Elaine May. And though her second feature, The Heartbreak Kid, had been a hit, the fact that her movies had a tendency to go over schedule and over budget gave credence to a false stereotype that women were too emotional to handle the nitty-gritty realities of directing. Though much would change over the next couple of decades, as directors like Penny Marshall and Catherine Bigelow efficiently helmed hits, female directors still had to work harder for a modicum of respect. This idea and, and that women couldn't handle it, that was, that was something that came up a lot. You know, the- Alison Anders, who made her directorial debut in 1987 and became one of the most prolific female independent filmmakers of the 1990s, says this stereotype persists to this day. And I'll tell you that still... If you're not kind of holding authority in the same kind of way that men hold authority, you're still running into, you know, just the constant, like, questioning. Do you really know what you're doing? Hmm, let's second-guess her. Certainly, the misogyny of Hollywood had impacted Polly Platt's career, 
and had limited her opportunities. Because women weren't taken seriously, because she had internalized the sexism of the world she had worked in and allowed it to impact her confidence, because of a host of related issues. But sexism wasn't the whole story. In the mid-1980s, Polly got a real shot at directing a feature film. The story of why she didn't direct that particular film is an object lesson in not just how much harder women had to work in order to seize power in Hollywood, but also how much more they had to be sure that they wanted that power. Today we'll talk about the film which Platt almost directed in the 80s, and we'll talk about three movies on which she did work, The Witches of Eastwick, Broadcast News, and Say Anything, which cemented her influence on a kind of prestige comedy that flourished during that era and influenced the next generation. Join us, won't you? For part eight of Polly Platt, The Invisible Woman. A decade after her work with McDonavich had ended, Terms of Endearment gave Polly Platt a new lease on her professional life, one she felt she needed. She was now in her mid-40s and was concerned enough about the industry's obsession with youth that she compulsively lied about her age. According to her daughter Antonia, Polly even went as far as to falsify her birth date on her driver's license. I knew she was born January 29th, 1939, and I looked at her driver's license and it said that she was born in 41. And I was like, Mom, you were born in 41. She goes, you know, never tell anybody your age in Hollywood. She was very worried about ageism. She talked to me a lot about that, a lot. And it made me really worried about it. Polly was worried that she had an expiration date. And with her association with the biggest Oscar winner of 1984, fresh in the industry's mind. She was determined to find projects to develop as a writer and director. Polly was drawn to a novel called The War of the Roses about a married couple whose divorce turns very dark. I know that it was a project that um, felt close to her heart. This is writer Nancy Griffin, who became friends with Polly in the late 80s. The black humor of War of the Roses and the, you know, the portrait of a relationship going bad and the the violence involved, <laughs> just the, you know, the darkness of it was pure Polly to me. Polly gave Jim Brooks a copy of the novel, and Brooks decided that he wanted to produce the film and hire a writer to do the adaptation and that Polly should direct it. As Penny Finkelman Cox who was working with Brooks at the time, recalls. Jim said, well, you want to direct, why don't you direct this? You'd really understand it. Obviously, the war of two, you know, spouses who fight to the death, <laughs> or almost, um, was something that was right up her alley. And we all wanted to help her, so it, she had lots of support. In September 1985, Variety announced that The War of the Roses would be Polly Platt's directorial debut. 
To write the adaptation, Brooks hired Michael Leeson, a TV veteran who had worked on The Mary Tyler Moore Show and Taxi. He and Polly clashed. I spent a lot of time with Michael, and we came to disagree about a few things regarding the script. I felt that the wife was getting to be too much of a bitch, and I didn't think the movie would work if only one of the two were awful. We struggled, and it wasn't pleasant, but the script was coming along. Polly's affair with her psychiatrist had finally ended, and she wanted to hire her ex-husband, Tony Wade, to be the line producer on The War of the Roses. By that point, Tony had evolved from working as a property manager to becoming a sort of fixer, known for rescuing productions that had gone off the rails. He was also getting sicker and had moved on to a dialysis-like treatment to stay alive. We talked about getting together again, and that seemed to feel good to me. He was raising his children alone and starting to have problems with Kelly, similar to those I had with Antonia. The only difference was his ability to laugh about it, unlike me. Tony was about to decamp for Florida, where he had been hired to fix the TV show Miami Vice. Polly was worried about him. She didn't think he was well enough to make the trip. Tony said, What do you do when they bring up a truckload of money and dump it on your lawn? So Tony went to Miami, and Polly kept plugging away on roses. Jim's development process was extended and took years. The movie had become, against my best wishes, much more hostile towards women. I thought War of the Roses was very anti-feminist. It went in that direction, and it was impossible for me to control it. I just thought that the only way that that movie would work, and I think I'm still right, is if both the people, both the husband and wife, were equally awful. Michael and I were not getting along, and he told me he really didn't give a fuck what I thought. Then, I received an offer to production design The Witches of Eastwick with George Miller. I jumped at the chance. It was a big movie with lots of special effects. Miller is a genius, and I loved him immediately. This would be Polly's biggest payday as a designer, and she would write that she needed the money. Not yet a full-time employee of Brooks's company, she wouldn't be paid for Roses until she started working on it as a director. Development had already taken years, and with Polly and Michael Leeson at an impasse, she was starting to lose patience. The Witches of Eastwick offered her an opportunity to go right to work. No more fighting. No more delays. Maybe she thought she could go do this job while Brooks and Leeson continued to work on the script, and The War of the Roses would be ready for her to direct when she got back. But it didn't turn out that way. I got on the phone with Jim Brooks, who really didn't want me to leave and do witches. He begged me to meet with Michael Leeson one more time to resolve our differences, and I said... What can you do when someone tells you they don't give a fuck what you think? Where do you go from there in a collaboration? My phone call with Jim was interrupted with an emergency call. It was Big Tony's agent telling me he'd not shown up for work for two days in Florida, where he was a line producer fixing Miami Vice. I told him to tell them to break down the door to his apartment. I knew what it meant. He was very sick, probably dead. 
I got back on the phone with Jim and he kept saying, it's really a big deal if you leave, Polly. I couldn't argue with him. I had to find out about Big Tony. I left the house in the clothes I was wearing and took a taxi to Eastern Airlines and caught the next plane to Miami. I arrived in the evening and went directly to the hospital where Big Tony was. He was on the emergency room operating table. The doctors were implanting a shunt in his shoulder. His eyes opened very wide when he saw me. He said, I must really be dying if you're here. Tony told Polly that a few days earlier, he had been feeling sick and went to his apartment and passed out. That was all he remembered. He thought he had the flu. He was dying, his doctors told me. Tony passed out and I went to a hotel. There I drank myself to sleep with martinis. Polly arranged for Tony's family to come stay with him at the hospital. Then she left to work on The Witches of Eastwick. Before shooting began in April 1986, Big Tony died. The bastards at Miami Vice wouldn't pay to have his body shipped back to L.A. So his brother Mark and his mother, who were with him at the end, had him cremated. There was a beautiful funeral. This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there is always something new to discover. With Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected, so you can explore incredible movies, streaming anytime, anywhere. This month in U.S. theaters, Mubi is releasing a new documentary from Academy Award winner Kevin McDonald, High and Low, John Galliano. It's charting the rise and fall story of the fashion designer John Galliano, who was one of the most successful names in couture, until his career abruptly ended in 2011. Featuring conversations with Naomi Campbell, Kate Moss, Penelope Cruz, Charlize Theron, Anna Wintour, and more. High and Low, John Galliano is coming to select theaters across the U.S. on March 8th. For showtimes and tickets, visit Mubi.com slash high and low. And to stream the best of cinema, you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. The Witches of Eastwick was a troubled production, in part because production began before the director and the studio had agreed on how the movie should end. In the John Updike novel on which it was based, the three female characters are witches when we meet them. Negative stereotypes of single, older women, they're also secretly, literally empowered. When the male devil shows up, they submit to a man's idea of liberation essentially becoming sex zombies, only to find that there's no stability in polyamory with the devil, upon which they retreat to more traditional domesticity. The failure of the sexual revolution for women was not something a studio movie of the 1980s was likely to confront head-on. And George Miller's film, 
adapted by playwright Michael Christopher, is ambiguous in every way. With a pop, almost camp sensibility, it dramatizes the very 80s question of how women can wield power without losing their femininity in a mainstream culture in which femininity had one meaning, and that was sexually attractive to most straight men. The movie uses sex and special effects to cover its metaphors, depicting male power as invisible but everywhere, while female power is labored over and most effective when wielded by a group rather than an individual. It pulls off a kind of magic trick, of keeping these ideas suspended inside movie machinations for a lot of its running time. But in the most 80s touch of all, the studio decided that the film needed a spectacular ending. On Witches, George Miller clashed with executive producers Peter Goober and John Peters. Yes, that John Peters, who Polly first worked with on A Star Is Born, whose relationship with Streisand had by then fallen apart, and who recently had a short-lived marriage to Pamela Anderson. Peter's partner, Goober, had been an exec at Columbia during the BBS years, where, as a proto-yuppie, he was even more out of place in the hippies running the asylum early 70s Hollywood than Peter Bogdanovich. Now Peters and Goober had been installed at Warner Brothers, where they were expected to exercise their truly exceptional gifts for marketing finished films— while staying largely out of production. But Peters had taken special interest in The Witches of Eastwick, forcing the director to shoot tons of effects-heavy footage for the film's climax, much of which was never used. On set, Polly's past with John Peters came in handy. Antonia, then in her late teens, worked on Witches as an assistant to its three stars, Susan Sarandon, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Cher. I remember once John Peters was coming on the set and everybody was very intimidated by John, including myself. But I knew John through Barbara Streisand. I'd known him since I was a really young girl, um, a child. But I remember being close enough to George and my mom and the, the, the actresses near the camera and... George, like, go send Polly to deal with John. And she walked over, and I watched my mother, because I was like, okay, my mom, who's the production designer, is going to go deal with John. She's not the producer, but she's going to go deal with John Peters. Because whatever, maybe, you know, behind schedule, who knows? There was an issue. She went over. It was just the two of them. I could see them across the soundstage. She talked to him. He was clearly not calm. And he left calm. And she came back. She's like, I took care of it. And she told me later, like, the job as a producer is to protect the director. Well, she was doing that. The opportunity to do something truly special with special effects was one of the reasons why Polly had wanted to design the movie. Having begun her career as a production designer wedded to realism, her last film in that capacity would show her talents at the opposite end of the spectrum— proving she was equally adept at supernatural fantasy. I started to design the sets, and George kept asking me for everything to be bigger. So I went crazy. 
I took four king-sized mattresses and put them together for the devil's bed, along with a very ornate headboard. It was so big that they added a line about it in the movie. I made the bathroom as big as a living room. One of Eastwick's key scenes was set in the devil's indoor pool. And with no budget to build a set from scratch, Polly had designed a beautiful gray silk tent around an existing pool on the Columbia lot. One day, as usual, I had my several glasses of wine for lunch and walked on the pool set and fell right into the pool. I had to be fished out by the grips, and I laughed it off. Alcohol had me, cunning, baffling, and powerful. But the set was beautiful, and I still get compliments on it. Polly rarely made a secret of her drinking. On the contrary, she could point to the quality of the work she did as evidence that, while her alcoholism might be negatively impacting her life, it didn't impact her work. This created a climate around her behavior that made it hard to question. Here's her daughter, Sashi Bogdanovich. I think in those days, too, like, you know, everybody just drank at 5 o'clock and, or lunch. I mean, Hollywood definitely did that as well. <laughs> My mom was known to drink at lunch, yes. And I think as a child, too, I thought, well, she keeps making movies, and so everything's okay. In the case of Witches of Eastwick, the production was so chaotic that the production designer drunkenly falling into the pool set was not the problem it might have been on another movie. Because of the trauma of trying to finish the film, Polly saw Eastwick as a tragic missed opportunity. But the movie was a hit. It was the 10th highest grossing film of 1987, right behind Lethal Weapon. And Polly's production design is truly incredible. One of her greatest touches of brilliance was the notion that when the devil parties with his harem, he would fill the space with thousands of pink balloons. Such an innocuous thing, the last thing you'd expect as a visual element of what was essentially a satanic orgy. But as Polly put it, they were cannily seductive. Everybody likes balloons. I said to George, what are you trying to do here? And he said, well, this is the honeymoon. This is where he seduces them. This is where they're having great times together. And I don't know what made me say this, but I said, well, a great way to seduce women is to bring them flowers or balloons, especially with Jack Nicholson as the devil carrying a bunch of balloons in his hand. And George loved that. And then he came to me and said, well, what about more balloons when he makes his entrance? And I said... Well, we can have as many balloons as we want, you know. Let's fill the room. And we indeed filled the room with 13,000 balloons. It's not in the script. I don't know why we didn't all get fired. The idea that when the devil comes to try to steal your soul, he'll come tempting you with things that don't seem outwardly satanic at all made its way into the next film Polly and James L. Brooks would make together. I know you care about him. I've never seen you like this with anybody, so don't get me wrong when I tell you that Tom, while being a very nice guy, is the devil. This isn't friendship. You're crazy, you know that? What do you think the devil's going to look like if he's around? 
God. Come on, no one's gonna be taken in by a guy with a long red pointy tail. Come on, what's he gonna sound like? <sighs> no. I'm semi-serious here. You're serious. He will be attractive. He'll be nice and helpful. He'll get a job where he influences a great God-fearing nation. He'll never do an evil thing. He'll never deliberately hurt a living thing. He'll just bit by little bit lower our standards where they're important. Just a tiny little bit. Just coax along, flash over substance. Just a tiny little bit. And he'll talk about all of us really being salesmen. And he'll get all the great women. That was Albert Brooks and Holly Hunter in a clip from Broadcast News. This would be the next full collaboration between Jim Brooks and Platt, because in the end, Polly would not direct The War of the Roses. When she had left Los Angeles to do Witches of Eastwick, Polly and writer Michael Leeson had left their disagreements over the script at a stalemate. Polly had taken a job that she knew she could do expertly, instead of fighting the battle to fight more battles as a director. One night, late in my hotel room, I received a call from Jim Brooks, sadly telling me that they had to move on with War of the Roses. They had found a director. It was Danny DeVito. I cried. And I went back to sleep. DeVito, of course, had known and worked with Brooks for years as one of the stars of the sitcom Taxi. And he had just shot his directorial debut, Throw Mama from the Train. In his memory, the project was in stasis when he got involved. Uh, basically, the way I understood it, like she was supposed to direct the movie War of the Roses. And uh, I'm very close with Michael Leeson, who wrote it, and, of course, Jim. And uh, one day I was having lunch with Michael, and I went in the car, got in his car, and I put my foot down, and there was a script on the floor, and it said War of the Roses. And I said, Michael, I thought you guys were working on this or made this, or what was the story? And I did, I might have known that Polly was going to direct it, and then he said that it's, come to a standstill. Now, I didn't know why. I said, well, you're not making it. No, we're not going to make it. And I said, you mind if I take a look at it? And I read it on the weekend and called him on Monday and said, like, look, can, if, is it, is it, can I get my hat in the ring? This, I love this script. DeVito worked with Leeson to expand the part of the husband's lawyer to give DeVito a juicy role that would allow him to serve as the film's on-screen narrator as well as its behind-the-scenes storyteller. His star power was added value to the film in a lot of ways. DeVito had appeared in two hits already, alongside Rose's stars, Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner. And much of the War of the Roses' advertising and press coverage revolved around DeVito's dual role as the maestro both of the story and in the story. Very few directors of any gender would have had comparative marketing value. But as Rachel Abramowitz notes, many of the women getting a chance to direct big studio films in the 80s and early 90s came to the job with a level of celebrity that Polly didn't have. Nora Ephron, who was already famous. Penny Marshall, who was already famous. I mean, it's these people who, you know, Barbara Streisand, who was already famous. It's like nobody... 
became directors who aren't already famous in some other medium, who aren't already stars. There were exceptions to this rule. Amy Heckerling comes to mind. But certainly there was something to the idea that it was easier to become a director as a woman if you were already famous for doing something else. Think about the AFI Directing Workshop for Women, which we talked about in Episode 6. The first year of that workshop, the organizers made a decision to only let in women who were already successful in some other aspect of the industry because they thought it would be too hard for someone who didn't already have that leg up to succeed as a female director in Hollywood. Polly was cult famous. People in the movie industry knew who she was, especially after Terms of Endearment, but the general public didn't. She didn't have the right kind of fame in 1974 when the workshop began. She didn't have it in the mid-'80s when she was trying in earnest to direct her first feature film. And because she didn't have it, she would have had to work a lot harder to seize that position of power, to prove herself up to the task. Her ambition would have had to have loomed much larger than her misgivings. And, whether consciously or not, in choosing to take the path of least resistance by working on the Witches of Eastwick, which was not easy by any means, but was a job she had done before and was sure she could excel at, she showed that she didn't have the drive and the self-confidence she needed to steamroll herself through all of the obstacles. There was always some feeling that, yeah, like some sense that you know, not quite enough confidence. Maybe it's just like reality, knowing the reality of it. I think it's just like you hit your head against the wall a hundred million times, and it's hard to hit your head a hundred and one million times. And I think that is just the reality of it. The War of the Roses opened at number one and became one of the biggest box office hits of 1989. Polly would be credited as an executive producer on the movie, which she claimed meant very little. She offered input on some sets and gave notes on how to shape the story through editing. But she felt she had long earlier lost most of the battles she had tried to fight in the writing process. I never really got into with her about the, the way, like what she want, which story she wanted to tell and how she wanted to tell it. My, my involvement with Polly and, and War of the Roses was... Basically, you know, we loved each other and, and uh, as friends, and she was always very, I remember, always very supportive. Like, you know, it's like having a great sister, you know, who uh, you feel like you can rely on and you could say anything to and you, could, you didn't worry about, you know, oh, I want to do this in the movie and that, you know, you know, don't hesitate, just... Just be free with your ideas. So she was very embracing that way and very inclusive and and open. So basically my take on Polly Platt. Be very frank about what she thought. But that was the good that's the good thing, right? Perhaps it was a function of timing, but Polly came to believe that she wouldn't have been able to direct the movie without Tony at her side. And in a later interview, she would tell the story of what happened with the War of the Roses in a way that made it seem like after Tony's death, 
she made an active choice not to direct the movie, as opposed to the more passive, running away from the opportunity that she describes in her memoir. I was very unhappy with the script, and I was very unhappy with what had happened to my life with the loss of Big Tony. If he had lived, I would have directed the movie. One of the reasons I say why I never became a director was because I never found someone like me who was so wholeheartedly for the director and watching their backs. I learned intimately what it was like to be a director through being married to Peter and being so much a part of directing these great movies that we made together. And when my husband Tony died, I felt that I had lost the person that I knew would watch my back and take care of me. I don't think I was quite sane during that period of my life, and I was terrified to direct without Tony. It may have been grief over his death, but I decided that I didn't want to direct the movie. The idea that she was making a more momentous decision than perhaps she realized at the time in de facto abdicating her chance to direct Roses would be another thing from Polly's life that would pop up in broadcast news. Remember, when everything had been happening all at once, the fights with Leeson over the script, Big Tony falling sick, all on the eve of Polly having to make a crucial career decision, Brooks had told Polly not to go take the job on Eastwick. He had said, it's a big deal if you leave. At the climax of broadcast news, William Hurt's Tom the character Albert Brooks was comparing to the devil in the previous clip we heard, wants to go away on a romantic vacation with Holly Hunter's tenacious news producer, Jane. She learns that he faked crying after interviewing a rape survivor and then edited the segment to make it look like he had been moved to tears by her testimony in the moment. It may seem like a small thing in today's media landscape, But that's the whole point of broadcast news. If we don't set some standards in regards to what we won't accept in terms of the manipulation of reality and the conflation of news and entertainment, we lose the ability to stop the moving train. Working up tears for a news piece cut away? You totally crossed the line between what is ethical and what is garbage. It's hard not to cross they keep moving a little sucker, don't they? It just proves that the difference is weak. This is a one-way argument. We have six days. If you go and we fight and we hate it, we'll come home. If you don't go, that's a much bigger deal. I leave for London right after that. So it'd be a very big deal if you'd stay. Plane is boarding. You're good at deadlines. Here's your ticket. Hurt's character forces her to decide whether or not to leap into the unknown with him. And Hunter's character decides not to. It is a big deal. This means they will never have a romance. The character of Jane was not based on Polly. She was based on Susan Zarinsky, who is now the president of CBS News. But Jane and Polly did have a few things in common. And broadcast news, a sprawling, emotionally resident, darkly funny and messy movie that I think is the peak of Polly's collaboration with Brooks is a product of the equally messy, emotionally charged, and complicated relationship between Brooks and Platt. Your business was humming. 
But now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work. It's taking forever to close the books. Getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 36,000, 25, 1. 36,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs, key performance indicators, in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist, designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash remember. That's netsuite.com slash remember to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash remember. Jim and Polly had begun to develop their unique dynamic on terms of endearment, as Penny Finkelman-Cox explains. You know, I, I, I will reduce it to the word fun, but it generated a lot of great ideas. And Jim, who's very um, insecure, who has trouble making up his mind, who, you know, the, there's a joke, if you've never heard it, that when you go on a set and start shooting with Jim, he would he'd fall into this pattern of cut, print, go again. Now, that means he printed everything. He could not make genuine choices on the set. But that's who he is. He's, he's his own genius. But Polly was so smart with Jim. She knew how to work with him to make him see what he didn't see at first. Paula Harold worked in casting on the first three films Brooks directed. I think he just thought she was incredibly smart and knew what she was doing, and he really listened to her. That's really the best way I can describe it. She was so much the visionary that it was fun to see her. And my husband once coined a phrase that I loved as I was trying to get used to working with her, she said, he said, you know, you guys are all creative and you throw things into the pot and then she tosses the salad. Polly had proven herself valuable enough that after it became clear that Polly was not going to direct The War of the Roses, Brooks still wanted to continue their collaboration. I had dinner with Jim, and he almost shyly asked me if I would produce his movie, and I gushed over my wine, not having read the script yet. The script, when I read it, was brilliant. Its prescience is astounding. Jim foresaw the downfall of the news divisions to pandering to the lowest common denominator. Credited as a full producer for the first time, Polly brought her invaluable talent and instincts into broadcast news. 
I was there every day, working with the production designer, working with the costume designer, working with the actors, seeing obstacles that were going to come into Jim's path and doing something about those obstacles to help him, looking at the dailies, expressing my opinion, encouraging Jim. One of the more famous stories about Polly has to do with her deciding, with Brooks, that a key design element of the film should be the color red. In various versions of this story, Polly was spotted walking around the set with a can of red paint, adding a stripe to a staircase, or deciding just before a shot to paint a door. She wasn't the production designer on this movie, and even a production designer wouldn't usually paint a door themselves. But Polly felt total ownership over the film's design. It really does say something about who she is because you could, you know, you could work with a person like that and, and you'd be like, oh God, she's crazy. What is she doing? You know, and this is writer Lisa Maria Rodano. But if you, if you had a commensurate talent to hers, you knew, you know, what you were getting. You knew you were getting somebody's genius and that they were offering you that genius. You know, the thing with Polly is she just didn't have any filters. And I think that that must have been very painful for her to live that way. But that lack of filter was so deeply connected to her talent. You know, she's, she, was, she had a huge ego. And, and righteously so. I mean, she's so talented. This is Penny Finkelman-Cox, who believes that Polly's in-your-face working style had calcified over the years through all that she had experienced. But she rarely would try to be objective, only because she's, she was very self-possessed. And, and, and also, I think after the whole Bogdanovich mess, she was so needy of approval and of contribution, meaningful contribution, because he had treated her so badly. Polly's need to be right and to be recognized for being right was another aspect of her personality which seemed to be reflected in broadcast news's heroine, Jane, who we hear in this scene telling her boss how she thinks he should handle assigning a story. I think he's essential to do the job we're capable of, and I, I think it's my responsibility to tell you that. Okay, that's your opinion. I don't agree. It's not opinion. You're just absolutely right. And I'm absolutely wrong. It must be nice to always believe you know better. To always think you're the smartest person in the room. No, it's awful. That's something that, you know, yes, Jim wrote that great line, but... I don't think you write that great line if you don't know Polly. This is Lisa Maria Rodano, who describes another memorable recurring image in broadcast news as being redolent of Polly's personality. Somebody who needs to unplug the phone and cry for a couple of times a day and knows they have to, like schedules it. All of that really, you know, uh, he, he... he got a lot from knowing her, let's just say that. <laughs> and, I, and, and, and he appreciated it. I don't want to feel like, make it sound like, you know, he took and took. No, no, no. He, she knew. She knew he 
he was grateful. She knew she was very much a part of something very important that they were all making. In doing press for the movie, Brooks would say that Hunter's character, quote, does know everything. What's she supposed to do? Keep her mouth shut? Later, after Polly's death, he would say of Polly, quote, she could not help being honest. She could not help saying what was on her mind. Polly spent most of her life unfiltered, which is what I think people loved about her. At the end of shooting, uh, be it 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, whatever it was, you know, there'd be some food brought in, some drinks, and Jim and Richie and Michael Ballhouse, uh, Polly, and some of the other folks. Uh, David Moritz, who would go on to edit Bottle Rocket, Rushmore, Jerry Maguire, and many other films, first got to know Polly on Broadcast News, where he was the assistant editor. Polly became uh, one of my favorite people to sit with all the time because, you know, you could sit there and um, in her own inimitable way, we'd be watching some rushes and she would have a fun comment about her boy, he was a real asshole that day so-and-so, or as opposed to the sort of the cryptic sort of, oh boy, there he goes, doing it again. Jack lifts his eyebrows one more time. I'm going to, that kind of thing, which was really valuable for me as an editor to start looking at um, actors' tricks and when they employ them and when it's useful when they do so and when it's not kind of thing. So she was really great about that stuff all the way through my life. While making this movie, a couple of things happened that forced Polly to be honest with herself about her drinking. Before shooting started, she bonded with one of the film's stars, William Hurt. Bill and I went out drinking every night, and I was grateful we had a limousine to take me back to the Mayflower Hotel as I got pretty drunk. Bill was way ahead of me, though, and one night, Jim, Bill, and I were at a bar, and Bill kept asking Jim if his character really was the devil. Jim wouldn't answer that. Holly Hunter was cast in broadcast news at the last minute, just before the whole crew was supposed to head to Washington, D.C. for rehearsals and shooting. Polly recalled that the whole team toasted her casting with champagne, and then while Polly and the rest of the crew packed for D.C., William Hurt packed off for rehab. Hurt's stay in the Betty Ford Center before the shooting of this film was well-publicized which was a newish phenomenon. Elizabeth Taylor had been the first celebrity to speak openly about going to rehab just a couple of years earlier. Polly writes about Hurt's experience as though he was the first person she knew who talked about alcoholism the way we generally think of addiction today. I picked Bill up from the airport after rehab, and he kept saying that his drinking was a disease, that it wasn't his fault. He was elated and was to stay sober the entire shoot. Polly would soon find herself doing the same. Before principal photography, I was in the bar in the hotel with the assistant casting director, Paula Harold, and I was drunk and apparently said something terrible to her, and she went to Jim crying. That was enough for me, and I put the drink down for the rest of the picture. I became good friends with Paula Harold. I didn't miss the booze. I ate a lot of desserts and got quite fat. A few times in my research, I would ask someone about a story Polly wrote about, and they would have a memory of something very similar happening, but with different crucial details. 
That happened when I asked Paula Harold about this. I took over for, for someone else on the movie, for um, Ellen Chenoweth. And we were in the bar at the hotel, at the Bristol, lovely Bristol Hotel um, in Washington. And, pa- and Polly was complimenting, you know, Ellen, like saying, you know, you're pretty, you're this, you're that. And then she went in for the kill. <laughs> And she, she didn't stab her in the back. She stabbed her in the front. And she drove her to tears. And when that happened, I remember thinking, she will never have the pleasure of ever making me cry. So I don't know if she got the people confused in that part of the book. Yeah, then we were friends. And, you know, she was very smart and very funny And, um, yeah, we became very good friends. Broadcast news didn't have the core personal connection to Polly's real life that Terms of Endearment had. But it did seem to reflect parts of her personality and experience. To come full circle to that scene in the airport where Jane has to choose between her passion for her work and the man she may love... Polly wrote about how she took the depiction of the working woman's love life personally. I was pretty upset that Jane couldn't have any men, particularly Bill Hurt's character, Tom. I so wanted Jane to get on the plane with Tom for vacation that the actors had to ask me to leave. Jim's portrayal of the woman in business who never got the man was upsetting to me. And I know that Jim agonized over it to the point where we tried to film a scene near the end where Tom gets in the cab with Jane. Jim wanted to surprise Holly with this bit of business, so it became very important that she not know that Bill Hurt was on set. All was secrecy. Then, just as the camera truck was starting to pull out with the cab in tow and Jane in the back seat, Bill made his appearance by getting into the cab. The first assistant director called, Cut! And the surprise didn't get on film. We did a second take, but it was without the real surprise that Jim wanted, so the couple never got together. I suppose I am a living example that you can have the career, but you generally don't get the man. God knows I tried. The release of broadcast news touched off a wave of stories, ruminating on whether it got the life of working women right. In none of these stories was it mentioned that one of the producers of the film was a single working mother. Later, Polly would muse about the gender politics of broadcast news vis-a-vis her own experience as a woman in the workplace. I don't know if Jim's prognosis in broadcast news is true, which is that if you're going to be a career woman, then you can't have it all. You know... There are tremendous disadvantages to being a woman in film, and they're weird things. They're things like, it seems inevitably you're making a movie around Christmas time. I'm with the men, and we're looking for good locations. We're scouting. Their wives are at home doing Christmas, Thanksgiving, Easter, whatever it is. I don't have a wife, and I never found a husband who wanted to be a wife. It's kind of whiny and stupid, but it's difficult to be heard. You have to work twice as hard than the men in order not to be thought of as a weak, useless piece of trash. Broadcast News earned almost as many Oscar nominations as Terms of Endearment, seven in total, for William Hurt, Holly Hunter, Albert Brooks, cinematography, editing, 
Best Original Screenplay, and Best Director. It was also named the Best Film of the Year by the New York Film Critics Circle. It's a heady feeling, kind of like drugs, just to bask in the light of all that adulation. And the best thing of all was knowing it was a really good film and would stand up over the years as a portent of everything to come in terms of the premise of the movie. Sashi, who was now 17, and Antonia, 20, went to the Oscars with their mom for the second time. They would never go with their dad. After broadcast news, Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson, who were then manufacturing one big blockbuster after another, from Flashdance to Top Gun to Beverly Hills Cop, wanted to hire Polly to direct a sci-fi film about artificial intelligence. The studio, Paramount, asked Polly to shoot a screen test to show she was capable of directing. She asked Penny Finkelman Cox to help. So Brookheimer and Simpson were the producers on set, and I was the line producer. And we we did it in her home. She gave us her home to to shoot in, and it was really fun. I loved working with Polly in that capacity because we were each doing what we wanted to be doing. When she didn't really want to be a designer, when she really wanted to be the director, you know, she wasn't as happy as <laughs> The project didn't go forward, as Bruckheimer recalls. What happened is I remember that it got killed because the computer or the, whatever you call it, um, there was no emotion or expression. You need expressions from, according to, or emotions according to the powers that be. So that's what kind of killed it. Or E.T. had a very expressive face and the, the robot didn't. Unfortunately, it was a robot. But I'll tell you, she was a force, I mean, and brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I love working with her. When you look at her film credits, I mean, they're they're pretty spectacular. And she raised a family, and she had this creative energy, and it was all-encompassing. She was a fabulous writer, and she just understood storytelling and drama and character and and she used it in her production design and everything else she did. It was, it was, I wish she was around today, believe me. This screen test would be the closest Polly would get to actually directing a film. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, TEND is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. When Big Tony died... Polly had vowed to keep an eye on his kids, Kelly and John. Yeah, no, she didn't. (laughs) This is Kelly Wade. I mean, I think she had the best intentions, but we didn't really have, I didn't have a relationship with her until probably 18. So from 16 to 18, those two years, I didn't see a lot of her. 
Polly and Kelly reconnected when Kelly married a guy named Arthur Lake, whose grandfather had been married to the illegitimate daughter of William Randolph Hearst and Marion Davies. Despite this pedigree, Polly was not impressed by Kelly's choice of mate, who Polly referred to in her memoir as, quote, a loser druggie. In 1989, Kelly gave birth to her daughter Natasha, and Polly was delighted to be a grandmother. But she was still disappointed in the choices the young women in her life were making. <laughs> All three of us girls did not pick, you know, uh, decent boyfriends, no. Polly soon found a film into which she could funnel her frustrations. Yay, Yay. Yay. I'll see you at home. All right. Now do yourself and everyone who loves you a favor. That's a clip from Say Anything, written and directed by Cameron Crowe, in which Polly, playing the mother of Lily Taylor's character, warns her daughter to stay away from the bad boyfriend she's tormented by. Crowe, who had already written Fast Times at Ridgemont High, had developed a screenplay at Jim Brooks's request about a teenage girl's relationship with her father, who turns out to be a crook. Crow, as he explains, had been working on the script with Brooks over several years, while Brooks was making broadcast news. And they were great years, you know, where two times a week you'd go visit James Brooks and talk about life, and talk about characters, movies you loved, Billy Wilder. And I would see the legendary Polly Platt moving through the office in the Gracie Films building. And she was, you know, 70s filmmaking royalty to me, to any kind of movie fan. That was huge lore, um, Bogdanovich and his association with Polly. And here she was with Jim. And they clearly were on fire together, a great combo. And when we couldn't find somebody to direct my script of Say Anything, we had one more person and Jim said, you know, if this person passes, it's going to be you. I was like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not ready to do that. And he's like, sure you are. You're the best person to direct that script if this last person doesn't want to direct it. And the last person was somebody who'd barely read it, who was watching a Lakers playoff game while talking to me on the phone and shouting at the refs. And it was like, uh-oh. I have to direct this movie. <laughs> Polly was looking for a new challenge, and she asked Jim if she could take a look at Cameron's script. It hit a nerve for her, the nerve that was already bruised from her battles with the rebellious teenage girls in her life. I read the script and was mightily impressed. It was about a smart girl being raised by her father who ran an old folks' home and her love affair with a kickboxer. It was brilliantly written, and I wanted to produce it because it might influence my girls and other girls to be smart in school and pick a boy who could serve her in all her gifts. Brooks let Polly take the lead on producing Say Anything. In addition to her personal connection to the material, Polly was in her element, imprinting her knowledge and experience on Crow, a writer and cinephile turned first-time director. She compiled lists of movies for inspiration, which ranged from From Here to Eternity to Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, 
What's New Pussycat to What's Up Doc. She ran into the latter film's cinematographer, Laszlo Kovacs, at an L.A. restaurant and decided he was just the man she needed to mentor Cameron from behind the camera. As Crow remembers... The pivotal move, Karina, was getting Laszlo Kovacs. Polly stayed on him and walked him to the door and was just like, the last thing you're going to hear this afternoon as you leave this restaurant is this movie that I want you to do for this first-time director. Laszlo, you must read this script. And, you know, within two days, he had agreed to do it. And that's pure Polly. Polly herself was a powerful presence on set. She she is... um, a powerhouse and does not suffer fools, you know, legendarily. So when you got the respect of Polly, you really had it. I was looking at some pictures of her earlier today, and that smile is just like warm sun. It's just, you just love that smile and that feeling of like you're, you're shoulder to shoulder with Polly Platt and she's happy, you know, but if she wasn't, it was like I always looked at her and thought of that poster for the, the Barbara Streisand movie, Nuts. That movie was out around the same time that we were making the movie, as I remember. And sometimes I'd be driving along and I'd see that poster and I'd go, that's the Polly I don't want to see today. <laughs> it's, a, it's, the, it's the sharp end of a knife is <laughs> what that look is. But you sure paid attention to that look. And... Um, You know, there were times when I saw it. And Cusack and she went head-to-head a few times, you know, and it was kind of an education to see. John Cusack, who plays the boyfriend that Polly hoped a nation of young women would fall in love with, was not eager to be starring in what he worried was a cheesy teenage rom-com. He felt he had already made enough of those. Polly wrote about the struggle to get the actor to do what she and Crow wanted him to do in what became Say Anything's most iconic scene, in which Cusack's Lloyd holds up his boombox under Ione Sky's window as the Peter Gabriel song In Your Eyes plays on the soundtrack. Polly had to finagle an impromptu reshoot to get the scene in the can, but it was worth it. When they were watching the dailies from that day, Polly turned to Cameron, pointed at the image of Cusack holding the boombox over his head, and told him that they had found the image that would sell the movie. Oh, wow. Yeah, she did say that. That's right. She did say that. Say Anything got great reviews, but it didn't make a ton of money. It opened at number three on the box office chart, but was soon crowded out by blunter tools like Pet Cemetery and the third Indiana Jones movie. Today, it's become a given that original films have a hard time at a box office, dominated by what we call existing IP. But back in 1989, this was a relatively new phenomenon. Polly hadn't been affected by it before. She had worked on an incredible ratio of hits to misses. Between The Last Picture Show in 1971 and The War of the Roses in 1989, she had credits on 14 movies, and six of those were mega-blockbusters, among the top 10 highest-grossing movies of their year. 
remarkably, say anything marked the first time in Polly's career that she had worked on a really good, arguably commercial film that just simply didn't get a chance to find its audience theatrically. Home video was another story, and another factor in bringing change to an industry that had been evolving ever since Jaws ushered in the blockbuster a decade and a half earlier. These changes caught Polly off guard. It was over for a while. Jim's deal at Fox was coming to an end. We had made big, broadcast news and say anything. Matt Greening and Jim had created the brilliant The Simpsons, now the longest-running TV show ever. And I thought Barry Diller would sign Jim up for another few years, but apparently that was not to be the case. Not sure what the future held, Polly downsized. Her daughters had moved out, and she leased her house to Billy Crystal and moved into a 40-foot motor home, which she kept parked on the Universal backlot while briefly working there. As Polly put it simply, I had truly lost my mind by that time. At this moment, Polly's friend from the Corman days, Barbara Boyle, now acting as an independent producer, introduced Polly to Paul Verhoeven, who had optioned Charles Bukowski's Women, an autobiographical novel about the alcoholic actors' relationships with girlfriends and groupies. I had no idea what to do with this book, as there were so many women in it, and the main character is basically an animal. But the subject interested me, and I looked forward to a nice collaboration with Paul. Paul saw I wasn't drinking, and when I told him I was an alcoholic, he very cheerfully told me that I would drink again. I was determined not to. The book was so challenging, I felt I needed to sober up and really try. So I got into my giant motorhome and drove it all over the Southwest, riding at various national parks where I stopped for weeks. I had many adventures on this 40-foot motorhome. It had a camera in the back so I could back into my parking space on the motorhome camps I stayed at. Your neighbor was parallel to you, and many times I would back this gigantic motorhome into its slot and start to hook myself up as my neighbors looked on, almost always a married couple. After seeing me hook up the sewage line and so on, they would ask, Your husband's sick? No, I'm alone. Oh, no, you're not. You're going to come on over and have dinner with us. Riding solo? That's not right. Dinner would be insufferable. Chicken fried to a crisp. Salad made from iceberg lettuce with canned mandarin oranges and marshmallows covered with mayonnaise, beer, beer, more beer, which I didn't drink. Their conversation roamed over the dangers of those fucking Jews who have all the money and have tied our apron strings to Israel. It was agonizing to sit there eating their terrible food and listening to their redneck comments. While on this journey, Polly had what she described as a vision about being an artist. She went on a guided tour of Mesa National Park, exploring incredible cave paintings made by ancestral Pueblans sometime in the 12th century. Polly saw herself as part of a continuum of creative people, and she realized that even if she could only reach one of the lower tiers in terms of achievement, she was just happy to be part of that continuum. She vowed to do the best job she could with her adaptation of the Bukowski novel 
for Paul Verhoeven. Polly finished the script, drove back to L.A., sold the motor home, and moved into a tiny house on a walking-only street on the canals in Venice. She waited for a call from Verhoeven and didn't get one. He had read her script and wasn't interested in directing it. I asked Barbara Boyle why not. Not good enough. It wasn't, it wasn't sharp enough. It really wasn't. Polly saw an opportunity in Verhoeven's lack of interest. If he wasn't going to direct Polly's script, maybe Polly could direct it herself. Boyle raised the idea to Verhoeven at a dinner meeting. Uh, Polly wanted to direct, and I wanted that for her because she was my friend. I loved her, and I wanted her to accomplish whatever her dreams were. We all had dinner over the thing one night, and Barbara Boyle suggested to Paul that I direct the movie, and he turned pretty nasty at the suggestion. Then when we were standing up in the foyer of the restaurant saying goodnight to Paul, he put his hands up my sweater in front of everybody and whispered in my ear, If you fuck me, I'll tell you how to write it. I told Boyle that Polly had written about this instance of sexual harassment, and Boyle said that she didn't remember it. After Verhoeven said he wouldn't want to be involved if Polly directed, the project sputtered out. Without the imprimatur of the guy who had directed RoboCop, women was a no-go. This episode began with Polly Platt, emboldened by her part of the success of Terms of Endearment, working towards what she thought was going to be her directorial debut. Half a decade later, she had put her stamp on three more important films— But that director's credit had proven elusive. She felt ownership over every movie she worked on. But they weren't really hers. Certainly not in the eyes of the public, for whom her work remained invisible. And that was frustrating. Her time in the wilderness, literal and figural, ended in 1990, when Jim Brooks made a new deal for Gracie Films at Sony Pictures. Next week, we'll follow Polly into a new decade through one disastrous big studio production and into the indie film boom, where she championed and shepherded the first film of one of the most beloved and imitated directors still working today. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was produced, written, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. Special thanks to our special guest, Maggie Siff, who read the words of Polly Platt. Today's episode included excerpts from interviews with Allison Anders. Antonia Bogdanovich, Sashi Bogdanovich, Barbara Boyle, Cameron Crow, Kelly Wade, Jerry Bruckheimer, Nancy Griffin, Paula Harold, Peggy Finkelman Cox, Rachel Abramowitz, David Moritz, and Danny DeVito. Special thanks to them and everyone else who took the time to talk about Polly Platt with us. 
Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Brendan Whalen is in charge of our social media and does additional research assistance. Additional research assistance and transcription by Kristen Sales and Wiley Wiggins. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. Today's episode was produced by Tamika Weatherspoon. Our audio was edited by Tomika Weatherspoon and mixed by Brendan Burns. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Josephine Martirana. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find show notes, which include all of our sources, information about music, and much more. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter, at RememberThisPod, and we're also on Instagram and Facebook. And you can support the show on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash Karina Longworth or buy merch for our show at podswag.com slash remember. Keep up with all of our episodes by subscribing on Stitcher or wherever you find your podcasts. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University of Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University, Maryland's forensic science programs today. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details.